I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia, our region and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here once again with my fabulous co-host, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Anna Greta. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be with you. I'm so looking forward to today's discussion. Sharon, I know this podcast is a highlight for both of us. We do spend a bit of time in between episodes talking about the extraordinary conversations we've just had and about the conversations that are coming forward. We get to speak with our friends, with colleagues and with so many people we admire from here within Australia and around the world. Our conversations often touch on the important challenges that we face locally, regionally and at a planetary level. And today's episode promises to be quite a remarkable example of these themes. We're going to be talking about planetary and human health, the challenges of health inequity, overconsumption and planetary ill health, and how we might move forward toward a better future. For those with an interest in health, climate change, or perhaps just an interest in the human future, this podcast will be a taster of the first symposia that's coming up shortly. The Planetary Health Equity Hothouse here at the Australian National University is hosting a symposium on Wednesday the 13th of September in which you can join us face-to-face here at ANU or online with some amazing speakers. And so to join us are two of the people who are deeply involved in this space. Professor Sharon Friel is one of our guests today. And Sharon is, of course, the director of the Planetary Health Equity Hothouse and the Australian Research Centre for Health Equity at the School of Regulation and Global Governance, or REGNET, here at ANU. She's also director of the Menzies Centre for Health Governance, As our regular listeners will know, Sharon is one of our pod favourites. And Sharon, it's great to have you back with us today. Delighted to be back with you again. Alongside Sharon is Professor Fran Bohm. She is a public health social scientist and professor of health equity at the Streeton Institute at the University of Adelaide. She has a particular interest in creating healthy, equitable and sustainable societies. Fran received an Office of the Order of Australia in 2016 for her services to public health. Fran, it is great to have you with us on the pod today. Yeah, it's great great to be with you guys too. Fran and Sharon, as, as Anna Greta said, we've both been really looking forward to this conversation and they are indeed very big issues that we're going to be talking about. The world is currently feeling the full force of climate change and its devastating impacts on planetary health. 
Throughout the Northern Hemisphere summer, we've seen catastrophic fires and across the globe, extreme weather events are occurring with frightening regularity. The research that each of you are doing does point very clearly to the interlinkages between planetary and human health. I wonder if we could begin today by asking each of you to talk us through what your research is telling us about those connections and the way those connections between the ill health that we see our planet suffering and human health are playing out. Fran, I wonder if we could start with you. Yeah, well, because that's a really big policy question, but it's a, it's a fantastic question. I mean, it seems to me that the things we're seeing, like the climate events that you've described, and I think also uh, ice not coming back in Antarctica and the climate emergency and crisis, is really a reflection of how we've been organising ourselves in the last 50 decades and also, and assuming that um, resources are limitless and developing an economy that's based on the idea that growth is good. And that in itself is, is not only threatening the planet, but it's also creating levels of inequity that are sort of taking us back to the early 20th century or before, when there's probably the point one percent in the world are gathering so much of the wealth compared to the rest of the population. The figures on inequity, I think people are almost deaf to hearing them. I mean, this week, I think we've seen them when we hear that a CEO of a, an airline company is earning well over $20 million a year. And yet at the same time, there are people who are having to make decisions between heating their homes or being able to pay the rent or buy food. So, it, but, and that's very real, I think. The cost of living crisis is making the kind of massive um, accumulation of wealth by a very few number of people very stark. And of course, that whole atmosphere is driving this, this desire for profit, which is based on growth in the economy. And I think it's becoming increasingly clear that that economy is not providing for a good life for people. It's, it's creating polarised political systems, I think, because of the inequity. And, and we're li living in a time when people are being encouraged to consume. And I'm sure Sharon will say much more about that. She, she's thought very deeply about that. But even though it's not really bringing them benefits, whether that's unhealthy food or cheap clothes that have to be thrown away, there's so many ways in which our society is geared up to be unhealthy. Fran, you made the comment about the, the CEO of a particular airline earning such an enormous amount of money. And I was listening to that this morning and then this afternoon talking to 10-year-olds who describe being cold and being hungry on a daily basis. And the unfairness of that is something that I don't think any of us should feel comfortable living with. Sharon, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on these interconnections between uh, planetary and human health. Yeah, and, and so just just picking up from Fran's remarks and and your rather startling uh, reflection from down uh, where you are uh, on field work, Sharon. I suppose the the thing that really at the core of uh, of what's driving you know, climate change, inequality, and health is what we've been referring to as this consumptogenic system. And this system of policies, of actors and all the different interests at play, the commercial activities and the norms that really are incentivising 
not just the sort of the individual consumption, but just the normalisation of excessive production of these fossil fuel goods and services, obviously incredibly harmful for the planet, uh, but often very bad for human health and very unequally uh, valued and distributed. And I think at the core of that consumptogenic system is, and, and we've known for a long time, you know, that like certainly folks in the policy world have known for a long time the types of actions that are needed across sectors. So, you know, what Fran was speaking about, you know, it's good social policy. It's of course, it, it's of course energy policy. It's housing policy. It's planning policy. The choices that are made in those policy environments either enable or constrain people's ability to adapt to climate change in an equitable or unequitable way, inequitable way. And it's also that those choices affect people's health. But I would say fundamentally, to me, one of the most powerful um, health equity prevention policies is climate change mitigation policy. And until we stop extracting, producing and incentivising the use of fossil fuels, then social inequities and poor health will continue. So we've got these incredibly interconnected outcomes that are driven by really common policy systems. And so the possibilities are for co-benefits are phenomenal, but I'm sure we're going to get to the politics and the, the challenges of uh, all of that. We will indeed go there very soon. But I, I did want to just shift roles a little bit and, and instead of Anna Greta asking the next question, Anna Greta, I wanted to ask you about this issue because I, I know that these issues, this, these interconnections between human health and climate emergency and planetary ill health are something that you work on, something that you've given a lot of thought to. Could you share your thoughts with us, Anna Greta, on those interconnections? Uh, I, I always, it, it's such a privilege to be on the other side of the microphone occasionally, Sharon. Thank you so much for asking me to contribute. And I, I don't know how much I can really add for the other two, bringing those extraordinarily powerful lenses around equity and, um, and the role of our economic system. But I guess reflecting on it as a clinician, as a cardiologist who's working in clinical practice, listeners will know that I've, I've spent some time working with some of the doctors in the Northern Territory in the last couple of months, and we've been looking at the Beetaloo Basin. Um, there's a proposal to, to frack gas from the Beetaloo Basin, uh, which will add not an insignificant amount of uh, greenhouse gas into the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, it certainly increases Australia's greenhouse gas emissions significantly. And I guess the argument that we've been making as doctors working in that space is that those fossil fuel mining uh, events uh, impact directly on human health through air pollution, through water contamination, through soil contamination. And then the, the bigger issues around climate change, particularly in the centre and the northern parts of Australia, are significant. 
these arguments are so important. These connections up between the dots of environment, of planetary health and human health are absolutely key. They're key for our understanding of life today and they're most definitely key and need to be centre when we're beginning to plan for our future. And so this, this discussion of how we shift from a biological focus in our healthcare sector toward an understanding of how important both the social determinants and the environmental context of the world in which we live are, this is an absolutely fundamental moment for human civilization to understand that to have healthy people, we need a healthy planet. And in order to do that, that prioritising uh, the health and wellbeing lens uh, can be tremendously powerful for policy shifts. Sharon, you you said just a moment ago that we'll probably talk about the issues of, of politics and power. Let's let's go there now, and you know, that that issue of what's happening in the Beetaloo Basin, I think, certainly takes us in that direction. Sharon, you just described for us the consumptogenic system that dominates us globally, and the normalisation of excessive production. That system creates incredible inequities and disadvantage for some, but not for all. Who holds power within that consumptogenic system and who profits from it? Well, fundamentally, the fossil fuel industry, and I could just stop there because uh, <laughs> um, it's fundamentally the fossil fuel industry um, who benefits, who profits, and is so closely entwined uh, within the Australian politics as well as of global uh, politics. But then, and then the argument goes that the industry, that particular industry, of course, generates jobs and opportunities for local communities, which inevitably uh, any industry has an infrastructure around it. It employs people and creates infrastructure in those locations, which then brings in the question of the just transition and the move to renewables. So, of course, it's not a, a straightforward discussion uh, of well stopping the fossil fuel industry from practising. Uh, but when we weigh up the, uh, the jobs and the opportunities that would be created with a massive investment in uh, renewable energy, then we have a complete, it's a game changer. So it's a game changer for climate change mitigation. It's a game changer for equitable opportunities in terms of livelihoods, employment. It provides uh, local infrastructure uh, in the same way. And then, of course, it's incredibly good for human health uh, in terms of the, the issues uh, that Anna Greta uh, had spoken to. But we don't, we're not getting the traction there and the fossil fuel industry makes the argument But we're doing so much, we're doing so much to you pull the emissions out of the, uh, the atmosphere. Well, actually they're not. They're you know, investing a tiny, tiny amount to do that whilst still investing massive amounts uh, for the extraction and the production of fossil fuels. So that's a distraction. We can't uh, engage in that conversation. So who benefits? It's the fossil fuel industry and governments uh, that get the backing from the fossil fuel industry that keeps them going over and, you know, in terms of the political cycles. 
Fran, there's a considerable body of evidence that suggests that the gap between the most advantaged and the most disadvantaged Australians is growing. This disadvantage occurs in income, in wealth, in employment and education and more. I wonder if you might tell us or take us through the ways in which inequality impacts on human health and how we might begin to address that. Well, I mean, you, you've pointed to many of the ways, what, what public health people call the social determinants of health and increasingly the commercial determinants of health. And broadly speaking, the social determinants are describing things in people's every day and the commercial determinants really move to more structural uh, conditions by and large. And if we think about everyday life, I mean, at the moment, the housing crisis obviously couldn't be a better example. Um, I'm just preparing a talk at the moment for a group of to talk to a group of mental health professionals. And the evidence is so clear when you look at it that people in Australia who rent their houses are much more vulnerable to mental distress and mental illness than people who own their houses. And of course, the processes by which that happen are very socially structured, because if you go to Germany or Switzerland, where tenants have um, the right of tenure, they have leases that last for 20 years, the impact of renting a house on your mental health isn't, isn't evident. But it's the way that we've got policy that is really in favour of people who own houses, second homes, they get uh, negative gearing, they're able to get big tax deductions. And we have a system where they can give people 12 month leases and then they can just have to move after 12 months. So I, I suspect it's that real insecurity that lays lies at the basis of uh, the way that we organise the rental house market. It doesn't have to be like that, but that's the way that it's developed in Australia. And I think it's a good example of how you could use policy to change that. And of course, there have been more and more calls for um, governments to stop that tax privilege for people who are owning more than one home and, and to ensure that renters have more security of tenure or even things like being able to own a, a dog or a cat, you know, that people should be able to do that if they rent a home. Um, employment. We know that unemployment is bad for your health. We've known that going back to the 1930s and the Depression. You can see that in the peak of suicides that happened in, in the 1930s Depression when so many people were unemployed in Australia. But we, but always un, unemployment, for, for obvious reasons, people then don't have income, but they also don't have a sort of sense of status and meaning in their life. Um, if we look at education, um, in most countries in the world, when women particularly get better education, then the, the society generally is, is less unequal and also more likely to be able to provide a good standard of living for all citizens um, because there's a whole lot of knock-on effects of, of good education. And, and, that, and I think you know, we've got more and more evidence, almost overwhelming evidence, that if you invest in early childhood development, then it makes a huge difference to people's health as they get older. And we've just um, had a Royal Commission in South Australia looking at early childhood education, which Julia Gillard, our former Prime Minister, chaired, and it was released this week. And it's really asking for much, much greater investment in early childhood. For instance, you know, I think um, we... One of the recommendations is that childcare runs usually from nine to three. If you're late picking up your child, that's really difficult or you have to pay extra money. We actually need out of sort of um, out of school care for pre preschool children. Just things like that that 
can bring policy into line with the reality of people's lives. So that's just a few examples of housing, education and employment. But just about everything in our everyday's lives can... Um, one, one thing that I'm really interested in at the moment is the way that people get alienated from many of our systems and particularly the way people get alienated from having to interact with bureaucracies, whether it's phoning your insurance company or your bank or a welfare system. And, you know, we've had great evidence in Australia when we look at robo-debt. You, you, we know the huge mental health impact that that on had on people. The Banking Rule Commission talked about people's huge frustrations and the way that their mental health had been really challenged by by banks. So I think there are those big structural issues of the way that corporations organise themselves, cut back services so that people in rural areas don't have access to banks and so on. There's just so many ways I think that, that things can damage our health. That's an extraordinary discussion. I think, Fran, you've taken us through the ways in which living in precarity really impacts on health through a variety of different mechanisms. And uh, I know at the end of this conversation that it's really, the connecting the dots is one of the really significant challenges. But I'd like to ask Sharon Friel, what role does regulation play, do you think, in addressing these inequalities, particularly the health inequalities that we've been discussing? Do we need to think differently about regulation and about redistribution and why? Yeah, well, so if we think of the redistribution part of your question first, Negreta, I think, so if we, if we take the argument that redistribution is vitally, vitally important for people's health for the reasons that Fran has just been describing and making sure that those everyday conditions in which people live and are exposed to the variety of environments, um, that they are not unfairly uh, disadvantaged, uh, because that's, I think, at the core of what Fran was just describing. And so the redistribution effect we know uh, can uh, level the playing field when it comes to health uh, health outcomes. So then the question of what's the role for regulation, well, policy and regulation in all of that. And what we've seen in countries and situations where uh, regulation with a core social goal has been put in place has created a better and more level playing field. But when those values are not in regulation, then it's it's usually regulation for um, uh, an efficiency uh, dividend. And if that's what's driving regulate policy and regulation, then we end up with a completely skewed system for social uh, outcomes, including health and including the environment. So regulation and the role of government uh, regulation is vitally important for creating the rules in which everything else then plays out. That's in essence what regulation is about, is creating the parameters in which uh, decisions and actions are made. And then going to some of the commercial uh, activities that Fran was pointing to, then the commercial entities and their behaviours and practices 
have to operate within those rules that have been set out within a regulatory framework that's based on social purpose. And that's been lacking, certainly for many years in Australia. We haven't had a regulatory system that is fit for purpose if we think that social and environmental goals are the purpose that we're working towards, coming back to what's the purpose of the economy. And that seems to be the fundamental question, is asking the question of what the purpose of the policy intervention might be. This has been an extraordinary beginning to our conversation, and I can see glimmers of hope for how we might create a genuinely healthy society. We need to take a short break here, and we'll be back in just a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here today with Professor Fran Baum and Professor Sharon Friel, and we're talking about health in its full sense. From our discussion so far and from the previous discussions we've had with you, Sharon, it's clear that overconsumption and the consumptogenic system is devastating for both planetary and human health. But it is a system that is now quite deeply entrenched. How do we transform that consumptogenic system without exacerbating inequality? Well, there's a tiny wee question, I'm the kid. We're only solving some of the problems of the universe. So, yeah. If you don't mind just explaining to us how we shift it all, that'd be great. Well, maybe I'll kick off and then Fran can go weigh in. Um, but so, yeah, so how do, we, how do we transform the consumptogenic system towards one that is healthy, equitable uh, and uh, environmentally sustainable? The million dollar question. Well, a number of ways. One, I think we need uh, socially progressive policy. And I'm going to talk about how we get to these. Uh, well, we can unpack that in a second. So socially progressive policy, we've been speaking about that. Two, we need, uh, well, first of all, actually, I should say, uh, I think we need to embed and normalise a new narrative And what that does is it gives possibility for the sorts of policy legacies that we need to see, the sorts of progressive policy uh, and regulatory legacies. So what's embedding and making possible a new narrative? And that refers to uh, not uh, a narrative which is not about individualism, a narrative that is not enabling profiteering, a a narrative that is a social uh, model uh, of health and well-being, 
a narrative that is based on uh, some of the Indigenous uh, Australians' uh, knowledge uh, and beliefs. Embedding that type of narrative and creating the possibility for that sort of narrative then means uh, a policy, a, the reimagining of the state. And the reimagining of the state, which is proactive, it's not reactive, it's obviously progressive and redistributive because um, the state isn't always uh, like that, of course. Um, it's about making sure the interests, the for purpose issue that we we're speaking about is making sure that the interests that are elevated into the state is socially uh, and environmentally uh, focused. And it's about fundamentally uh, a resetting of governance approaches. How do we set reset governance? It's about the different voices. We've spoken before uh, on this podcast about it cannot be the usual suspects. It cannot be the old white men uh, that sit around the policy table, that capture the policy agenda. It cannot be those usual suspects. We can't have a policy agenda that's driven by uh, the interests of the fossil fuel industry, uh, which is what we often have. So it's a new form of governance, and I'm sure Fran will say much, much more about the role of civil society and deliberative democracy uh, in that governance uh, resetting. And fundamentally, it's about rebalancing power. All of this is a rebalance of the power of the hegemonic interests. It's not, it can't be biomedical, it's about social. It can't be economic, it's about social. It, you, it can't be colonialism, it's about uh, social. That sounds quite peculiar when I say it in, in that, uh, that way, but I suppose it's just the calling out of the dominant interests and ideas in our policy systems that have and continue to maintain the status quo and therefore constrain that uh, pathway towards the transformation um, that we've been speaking about. I think having asked an impossibly large question, uh, Sharon, you've given us a beautiful framework of an answer there, but I'd love to hear, Fran, your ideas on this. How do we transform the consumptogenic system? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's partly the consumptogenic system, but it's also a system of power that privileges an elite. And I, I've just at the moment, I'm rereading um, Engels, The Condition of the English Working Class, um, for, for a talk that I'm going to do. And it's fascinating because basically he's arguing for social determinants of health. So he maps the fact that in, he wrote it in the 19, uh, 1840s in Manchester. He maps the fact that those workers were much worse off than their counterparts who had stayed in the rural areas for a variety of diseases. Then his recommendations are we need to improve living conditions, working conditions. We need to have better education, much better housing. So there's some, you know, these issues are not new. People have been talking about the need to reduce inequities and improve living conditions for, for centuries. And uh, I work 
a lot with the People's Health Movement, which is a global network of civil society activists. I finished my term as, I've done two terms as co-chair of our Global Steering Council. And there I'm in contact with people. We have circles in about 50 odd countries and we have a very guiding um, document, which is the People's Health Charter, that really talks about what what people need to flourish and in their lives. It's not just about reducing inequities, but it's enabling people to live flourishing and well-being lives. And the sort of the the sort of extractive capitalism that Sharon's described so well has a particularly strong impact on people, on particularly on indigenous peoples around the world, whether it's Africa, Latin America, Australia or wherever. And the general pattern is that those resources are extracted from those countries and exported to rich countries, and we've been living off the fat of their land, if you like. So there are these huge questions of global inequity. And in in COVID, we saw, of course, that when it comes to getting access to a vaccine, um, if you didn't live in a rich country, you had to wait a lot longer for a vaccine. And in fact, in many countries in Africa, you might still be waiting. So that... and. Um, some work I'd done with colleagues from the People's Health Movement, we had played with the idea of the social vaccine um, a few decades ago. But Sharon and I had a discussion and we thought, well, it, it's not just the medical vaccine that people are lacking, it's the social vaccine. So we did write a paper about calling for the need of a kind of COVID, a, a sort of social vaccine to get equitable human and planetary health. And we looked at the, the components would be people having a life with security, whether that was about guaranteed health services, income and so on, a progressive taxation service um, system. We also said opportunities have to be fair, and that relates to the fact not just equal but fair. So it's equity that we're aiming for, and that's about just having anti-discrimination legislation, good and affordable education, fair and decent employment, and all sorts of environments like urban, rural, food environments that support health. Of course, we said the planet has to be habitable and support biodiversity, and that includes that rapid transition to zero carbon emissions, supporting biodiversity and removing subsidies and supports for fossil fuels, which at the moment we're, we're supporting the industry that's killing us. And then, of course, we talked about governance that's just, um, about universal franchise transparency and accountable measures in all political processes and also legislation that really supports uh, civil society movements and you know much to my horror around the world now the space for civil society is closing down in so many countries and in the sort of measure of how open civil society is we're seeing countries move to either closed or oppressed and I think that's a great worry because most social reforms we think about happened because of um, agitation, whether it's the suffragettes, whether it was trade unions in the 19th century to improve working conditions. Um, there's always been a social movement there, slavery. And just in my own state in South Australia, Extinction Rebellion has been very active and, and blocked a street. Then within a month, our Labour government passed draconian legislation to restrict the right to protest in, in South Australia, which, which I think is, is, is worrying because, yes, Extinction Rebellion were taking a measure that shut the street down for a few hours during a, a rush hour, 
But on the other hand, it was young people who are desperate. Well, actually, she, she was an older person, but Extinction Rebellion, there's a lot of young people who are desperately worried about the future. And for a government to say, well, you know, we can't have roads shut off for even a few hours is to me remarkable. There was massive rallies in Adelaide opposing this change to the legislation, but um, it didn't make any difference. We, we now have a, a, a more repressed civil society space in our state. So I do think one of the forces for change, even under repression, will be a strong civil society movement, because very often they force the hand of legislators, of, of politicians. And um, most, as I've said, most social change comes from that. So for me, an important part of this social vaccine is societies being open enough that civil society gets its voice heard. And I guess that's what our upcoming referendum is about too, ensuring a group who have been uh, powerless, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, actually having a voice to parliament that still probably won't be as strong as the fossil fuel um, voice to parliament, which has all sorts of ways of, of infiltrating those sort of political systems. That's how we see a social vaccine. Fran, that's an incredibly insightful and powerful explanation of, of what has gone so very wrong, but also how we can rethink the way we live and the way our world works through something like a social vaccine. And the issues of, of justice and power at the heart of, of what we need to confront, and we do see those injustices and that power playing out in Australia, and you, you referred to the voice. And of course, we have a shocking gap in health outcomes and other outcomes between national averages and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia. I wonder if, if we could focus a little bit now on the importance of the voice and how a First Nations voice to Parliament can help us to address some of those problems, not just of health inequality, but of the kinds of deep inequality that we see in Australia between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. This is something I've been thinking about. I just published a paper in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, with Pat Anderson and Megan Davis, of course, who are very prominent in the pro-yes pro, um, campaign. And Pat's desire was to show that, that, in fact, the voice would have practical outcomes. In, and in this case, we looked at health. And some of the evidence we pulled together in that article was to say, look at the example of the Aboriginal community controlled health sector, which has done remarkably well um, and gets better outcomes than other health services for Aboriginal people, because there is a sense of self-determination there and, and a sense of control. And that in itself is powerful. We also drew on some work that Sharon and I were, were leading under a Centre of Research Excellence where we did a policy analysis of the Northern Territory intervention um, where there was a fantastic report done by Pat Anderson and uh, uh, Wild and they recommended a kind of community development approach to looking at these problems. And what the government did was come in literally sent the army into Aboriginal communities, had strict prohibitions and and it was completely, there were enforced 
physical examinations of children and so on. And the policy analysis subsequently have suggested that that was very damaging, that it didn't achieve what it set out to do. Now, if there'd been a voice to Parliament that was taken seriously, I very much doubt the Northern Territory intervention would have happened. Similarly with with the Stolen Generation, if you'd had an Aboriginal voice to Parliament, I don't think the Stolen Generation would have happened. And just that process of people feeling that they can make an input to policies that are about about their lives, what happens to their health services, their schools, their living environments, whether that's in urban settings or in remote Australia. Um, The evidence is that that kind of self-determination makes a huge difference. There was a great study in Canada that compared Indigenous communities that had a degree of self-determination with those that didn't. And the suicide rates were dramatically higher in the communities that didn't have self-determination. Now, it's very hard for people to think, well, how do you get from self-determination to a lower suicide rate? But if you think about, you know, people feeling that, yeah, I'm not haven't got an outside power controlling my life, I can actually make a difference. We we can do something about our own um, own situation. We can be taken seriously. You begin to see how that would affect people's mental health. But it's not obvious to people how this voice will will make that difference. And I just came home today and we'd got the pamphlet about the yes and no case. And it's a very stark, very worrying document to read to me, actually. Um, The no case, there's no attempt to look at evidence, I think, whereas I think the yes case is actually drawing on what we know about what affects health, whether that, you know, that's in terms of um, Sharon and I work very closely with Michael Marmot on the Commission on the Social Determinants of Health. And a lot of his work has shown that that relative status has a real health effect. I mean, he showed it with British civil servants, who none of whom are poor, or but who, if you were in the lower ranks of the civil service, you were more likely to have a, a heart attack than others. And when they mapped that back, it was, was this kind of status syndrome that was making the difference. And you can extrapolate from that to, to I think, look at the situation of peoples whose lands have literally been stolen, who have been subjected to all sorts of colonial processes over the years. Um, And the policy proposal is that we ensure that those people are able to talk directly to our lawmakers and say, actually, we know our community and this is likely to be the effect. Is that what you really want? So, uh, you know, I think the argument is very powerful in favour of the voice. um, But I'm I'm quite fearful that that won't be heard by most Australians because it's not a direct relationship. You you have to kind of think that through. And if you're not aware of all that evidence on how uh, a, a whole lot of what your status is, how you relate, whether you're empowered or not empowered, make, does make a huge difference to your health. Fran, the voice, I think, is is one of the most important moments that we will face as a nation. And I think you've just mapped out so powerfully what it will mean for Indigenous people. But for the last 200 years, the deep knowledge of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people has been ignored in this country and very often deliberately discarded or destroyed. What can the rest of Australia learn from that knowledge as we grapple with the challenges of both climate emergency and health inequalities? Yeah, well, I think Indigenous knowledges, as you say, do have a a lot 
to um, teach us. Uh, the moment I'm, we're working through that as part of our research team, we have a big project looking at decolonization of Aboriginal health services. And we're really asking what does decolonization really mean? And looking at how one of the very important elements of that is acknowledging and respecting and embracing indigenous knowledges. And central to that, I guess, is a, a process of how it seems traditional um, Aboriginal societies generally around the world, but a much deeper sense of listening to each other, a much deeper sense of living on country um, and understanding that country and having sort of processes that enable consensus to be met amongst people and, and to engage in a kind of deep listening that very often, particularly, I think, since the era of social media, we've become very bad at. You know, we've got so much kind of quick um, memes or quick images on Instagram or Snapchat that it's not reflective. It's, it's, it's very different to how the wisdom of sort of elders in um, many Indigenous cultures would, would be dealt with. It would be based on a deep respect, a deep listening, a deep consideration. And, and I think people know um, now that um, the sort of lessons of Indigenous people caring for country probably have a lot to teach us now in terms of uh, preventing fires or dealing with fires, preparing country so it doesn't burn. But I think there's many, many ways in which as a white person, I really don't understand those Indigenous knowledges. And I think we have a lot to learn from it. And it does require us to be quite humble about the knowledges that we draw on and their limitations. So for me, that's a sort of work in progress, being open to hearing about those other knowledges. But um, I know enough to know we'll have a lot to learn from them. But I'm sure, you know, an Indigenous person would, would give you a much better picture of, of what what's offered and what the gift of those is, if you like. Yeah, I think that brings us back quite very nicely to one of the points that Sharon Friel made earlier about the importance of having different voices in this space if we're looking toward a solution framework that enables better health and well-being. I could personally listen to the two of you talking about these issues for such a long time. It's been an extraordinary discussion, but we will need to begin to wrap up. Each of you have so powerfully mapped out the incredible challenges that we face, challenges that can at times feel overwhelming, and I know some of the questions we've asked have been large. But as we finish today's conversation, I'd love to hear from both of you about ideas of hope and optimism. Can you see flickers of hope, of change, of progress that might be beginning to turn around the consumptogenic system and the adverse impacts on our health and well-being? You know, the, the motto I always have in these situations is the situation is impossible and we must take the next step. I think that's good advice and that, that can engender hope. And clearly, if you become hopeless, then the future is going to seem really, really dire. And um, I've just recently read um, Jane Goodall's book, The Book of Hope. I don't know if you've seen that. You know, Jane Goodall was the woman with the... Um, uh, gorillas and, and how fantastic she was about that and she just tells stories of how to, how to maintain hope you know you you have to remember the moments when you felt hopeful and and ensure that you have 
a sort of vision of how the world could be. And that's what I find so inspiring about the people's health movement, that we start from this beautiful vision for that the world should be equal, it should be sustainable, it should be fair. And if you keep that vision in sight, then I think you can maintain hope. But without that kind of vision, I'd find it very hard to maintain hope. So it's really important that people keep offering us alternative visions of what the future could be like and how it could be so much better, not just for some people, but for everyone. Yeah. So the idea of making hope convincing rather than despair, uh, I can't think of what the the final word would be, um, but rather than despair convincing. um, And I, I... I do see disruption happening all over the the place where there is that pursuit of uh, a shared collective vision where there's small uh, policy innovations happening, which you're then the possibility of that uh, blooming like algae and spreading far and wide. uh, Well, you you see that. I don't actually like using the electric vehicles as an example because it's um, so inequitable. Uh, But if we were to bring an equity, a real equity lens in there, then I think understanding the policy innovation that's happened there, there's something to learn from that. I think we're going to see more and more uh, civil society action around social inequities uh, as Uh, The cost of living crisis absolutely bites more this year and and next year. Uh, So we'll get uh, that uh, activity. And I think we're also seeing new frames uh, coming into the language, uh, into the public and the the policy uh, language, well-being uh, well-being budgets that are now spoken about they're not mainstream but they're starting to be spoken about a bit more that setting a new policy idea uh, on course whether it's useful or will stick who knows so um, it's I don't believe in one it, there's no silver bullet at all to to this it's that combination of uh, different factors with different conditions that will allow uh, these changes to take place. And and I am, well, I think we have to be uh, hopeful, but how do we make it not just hope for the sake of hope, but actual action uh, is the big thing. And so if you come to the, the policy symposium on the 13th of September, uh, you'll hear, hear much more about these sorts of issues. Sharon and Fran, this has been an amazing conversation. It's a conversation that I know both Anna Greta and I would love to return to with each of you in the future. You have given us so much to reflect on and also those glimmers of hope and optimism for the future. Thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. Sharon, that was a fantastic conversation. I I could listen to those two talking about the problems that we face and the extraordinary opportunities when we look for solutions in this space around both the future of our planet and the people on it. But what were your thoughts? Uh, Anna Greta, what a privilege it is to hear two of the leading thinkers in the world 
reflect on not just what the problems are, but but how we move forward. Like you, I, I love that conversation. And listening to both Sharon and Fran and thinking about, you know, the children that I'm working with at the moment because I'm in the middle of field work once again, you know, I, I can't help but be absolutely shattered by the the reality of so many people's lives, the precarity that's shaped so many people's lives. You know, homelessness is the extreme example. It's becoming far less rare. It's becoming almost accepted in this wealthy country. As Fran pointed out, globally, we have unbelievable, unacceptable inequality. And we know that that's as a result of failing systems. And, you know, the way Fran and Sharon mapped out the dimensions of that failure is so powerful. But I also kept reflecting back, Honey Greta, to the conversation we had recently with Rob Hopkins and what it is that we need to imagine, how we need to think differently about the future that we want and then think about how we're going to get to that imagined place where we've actually addressed so many of these challenges. But I think all of that's going to take some very, very different thinking And it it struck me when Fran was talking about that remarkable work that's being done in South Australia around early childhood care and education. Um, And one of the recommendations is that um, three-year-olds need after-school care so that their parents um, can have more time for work. And I think this is somewhere where we need to think really differently. We need to imagine very differently what we want our societies to be. And maybe it's time for us to think about transformed systems where parents are able to have time to care for and to play with their children if that's what they want to do, rather than being expected and required to prioritise work. We need to think as our starting point of what we want to reimagine about the childhoods we want to create for our children. We tend to think very much about early childhood, and that's often because we're thinking about the productivity of the future. But we also need to think about middle childhood. We need to think about adolescence, how we connect children with the people around them and the consumptogenic growth-given work systems that we have don't allow for those relationships to be built. So how can we begin to entirely reimagine the kinds of societies that we want to live in? I, like you, Sharon, it's been the most remarkable discussion and I did find myself reflecting again on the conversation we had now a few years ago with Dame Marilyn Waring where she defined for me the use of gross domestic product and its extractive and consumptive framework that sits behind so much of our economic uh, decision-making. And I'm really struck listening to the two of them that we can't continue to ignore the impact that the economic system has on our planet and on our people. The need for utopian thinking, and that's part of the the conversation around imagination, to imagine just how we can join the dots and see the solutions, Uh, the way in which we might be able to achieve change, those glimmers of hope, it's so inspiring. And I'm reminded again that, it, that this central question of what we want, why we're doing it, what are we here for, might matter much more than we have thought in the past. That to articulate the driving force, uh, and the driving force cannot be a GDP number, 
I think the driving force is care and to value care, to care for people and to care for place. And when that drives our decision-making, these extraordinarily complex, difficult systems become much clearer. That is the principle and, and the value that underpins our governance that helps to define the pathway through really complex territory. And Anna Greta, I'm thinking again about Marilyn Waring and that she pointed out to us when we spoke to her, the concept of GDP is new. It's it's a construct. It's not the only way of doing things. But I think both you and I would argue that care is fundamental to the human condition. Absolutely. Listeners, this podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy, and we will leave a link to the publications and sources, of which there are many today, on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with our future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. We do love to hear from our listeners. We do love hearing from you, our audience. So please do reach out to us. You can get us on Twitter or whatever the platform's now called at ANU Crawford or through our very new email address, which is policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. Our thanks to Hannah Scott for production and to Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. That's all we have time for now. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.